I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Isaiah chapter 40. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you. I hope that you'll grab it. There are certain days on the calendar that we look forward to, days we get excited about. Of course, there are birthdays, anniversaries, Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and then there's the really important holidays, like the first day of spring, the first day of baseball, days that we look forward to, right, that we anticipate. I know you do. We all have our eyes on April. But this, today, is one of my favorite days of the year. It's the day we start Advent. And it's become our habit as a church to set aside three or four weeks leading up to Christmas and to call them Advent. And they, they serve a specific purpose. You may know the, the word Advent, it means arrival or, or coming. And we use the word Advent, we're talking, when we use it as the church, we say Advent, what we're talking about is the coming of Christ. The coming of Jesus into the world. And of course at Christmas, when we talk about Advent, the first thing that should come to our mind is He came, right? What we know is that for generations and generations there were a people of God who had promises and they were waiting and they were watching for this one who had been promised who would come. Promises had been made. Salvation is coming. Deliverance is coming. The defeat of your enemies is coming. And what we know is we look, we look back, we know that he came. There was a virgin who gave birth to a son. and His name is Jesus. We call him Emmanuel, God with us, because he came. And when he came, he was fully God and fully man. And this is what we celebrate. It's what we remember at Christmas that when Mary gave birth, she gave birth to the promised one. She gave birth to the long-awaited Prince of Peace, God in flesh, the one who the people have been waiting for and watching for. He had finally come. And when we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating this. God keeps his promises, right? We're celebrating that God keeps his promises. And we've seen it. We know it because he promised the Christ, and then he came. Yet what we know is that when he came, the coming wasn't what many people expected. What they expected was a conquering and a victorious king, and yet they didn't see that in Jesus. And because of his claims, because he claimed to be Messiah, because he claimed to be God, they hated him. And the climax of that first coming was the cross. Now, we just went from Christmas to Easter real fast, didn't we? What I, what I want to help us see this morning as we start our season of Advent is that for us, Advent is twofold. Part of Advent is going back and putting ourselves in the shoes of those people who lived before the first coming, and they were anticipating the Christ. And my hope for us is that we would do that. We would spend some time trying to feel what they felt as they look forward to the coming of Christ. But that's not all we're going to do during Advent. For us, part of Advent is also recognizing that we, too, are a people in waiting. That we are living and waiting and watching like they were for the coming of Christ. So, 
we're clinging to promises just like they were clinging to promises. And yet we have an advantage. Here's our advantage. We've seen the promises kept, right? He promised Christ, and Christ came, and we know this is true. And now we know he has promised to come again. And so we believe, and we hope, and we know he'll come. We can trust God. He keeps his promises. So this is what Advent's all about. It's this time to remember promises made, promises kept, promises made, and promises that will be kept. And maybe that all makes sense to you. I, I know what Advent is. But maybe you still don't understand why I would say it's one of my favorite times of the year. This is why I love it. Because we get four weeks where we're going to be very intentional. And we are going to say this over and over and over. God keeps his promises. You have hope. And every year when we get to this point at the end of the year, I recognize that as we look back, we see so clearly. Maybe you're feeling this this morning. Man, life is unpredictable. Life is uncertain. We need reminders of things that are sure. And life can be hard and heavy, and I need the reminder that there is a God who is coming who's going to make all things right. I get tired. You get tired? I need the hope that rest is coming. And I'm like you. Every week is a fight against the flesh and the devil. And I need the assurance that Christ is coming. And when he comes, all sin will be defeated once and for all. I know for some of you, this has been a year of pain, a year of grief. We all feel it to some extent, I think. But here's the hope. We have something to look forward to. So the title of Advent this year, these are the kind of things that you'll forget, but I agonize over. What do we call the season of Advent? Here's our title for this month. Take heart. Salvation is coming. Take heart. Weary brother, sister, salvation is coming. So here's the plan. Starting today and for the next three weeks, we're going to look at four different passages in the book of Isaiah. Maybe a book that you haven't dusted off in a little while. We're going to jump in with both feet. Four passages, and they all have this similar theme. Salvation is coming, and my prayer is that God would use his word to give us strength, to give us hope, to give us joy. But since we're jumping right into the middle of a book, we got to do a little work, don't we? Michelle said, this is going to be a long sermon, isn't it? I said, why? Well, she said, it's the start of Advent and it's starting a new book. We're going to be here a while, aren't we? I'm going to try to make it brief, okay? She knows me, though. As we come to the middle of Isaiah, it's important that we feel where we're jumping into. So Isaiah, who is Isaiah? He was a prophet. He was one to whom God gave a message that he was supposed to proclaim. And it wasn't a fun message to preach. I get to preach fun messages. Hope, joy. That wasn't Isaiah's primary message, at least at the start. God sent Isaiah to be the proclaimer of coming judgment. And if you get excited about Isaiah this morning, think, I'm going to go read Isaiah, and you start. It's a bit of a slog, okay? I'm just going to warn you through those first 39 chapters. 
because it's a book about judgment. And Isaiah is telling the people of God, because you've been unfaithful, because you've not trusted God, because you've trusted enemy nations instead of trusting God, a time of judgment is coming. And this is what judgment was going to look like. God was going to take his people out of their land, and they're going to be exiled and live under the rule of other nations. The first 39 chapters, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's judgment. But there are there's this thread that runs throughout. And over and over, Isaiah does remind us, even in that first half of the book, God keeps his promises. There's hope. There's salvation coming. But that first half of Isaiah is a pronouncement of coming judgment. But then we come to chapter 40. And there's a transition. And think about what the people would be thinking after they had heard for, they didn't have chapters, but this long pronouncement from Isaiah of judgment coming. And they recognize their sin. They recognize that they have distrusted God. And now they hear that God is going to bring his hand against them. And perhaps they wondered at this point, has he abandoned us completely? Has his mercy toward us run out? Have you ever been there? You felt the hand of God, the discipline of God, and maybe you thought, I have gone too far this time. Well, as we come to 40, chapter 40, we have this transition. It's a place where Isaiah announces to the people of God that although they will go through a time of judgment... God is faithful. There will be judgment. There will be suffering. There will be exile. But in the future, for the people of God, there's also comfort and salvation. So this morning, I said all that to say, if you think Isaiah is a really happy book, know that we're jumping in at the happiest point. Okay? And if we're going to feel the happiness of this chapter rightly, we have to remember the heaviness of what's got us here. We have a people who will know pain and suffering, a people who will feel forgotten by God. And because of what they've done, they know they don't deserve anything good from God. My guess is it's not terribly hard for you to put yourself in their shoes because maybe your experience isn't much different. You know your sin, and you recognize that you don't receive, deserve anything good from God. And yet, this is the hope that we're going to get this morning, that God is faithful to his promises. We are a people in waiting. And we know, we can know that because of Christ, because he came, salvation is coming. So Isaiah 40 is an announcement of hope, announcement of comfort, an announcement of salvation. It's my prayer that God would use it to strengthen us and also to remind us that we have a message worth proclaiming during the Christmas season. So that's where we're going, Isaiah chapter 40. I just want to acknowledge on the front end, I'm not used to holding this microphone. This feels weird. Let's just all embrace it, all right? Don't be distracted. Yes, I'm wearing a mic and holding a mic. I'm just going to read here. Isaiah chapter 40. I hope you'll follow along as we read, starting in verse 1. Comfort, 
Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward and his recompense are before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's promises never change and never fail. Let me say this one more time. I don't want you to forget. 39 chapters. Judgment is coming. You will be disciplined for your sin. And yet God does not forget his people. It's a grim picture that changes as we come to verse 1 of chapter 40, and we get these two words that up to this point, at this point, seem unexpected. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. It's been made so clear God is going to give his people for a time over to their enemies. The anger of God up to this point has been on full display. And yet now he comes, and the prophet is told to tell the people, take heart. Anytime you see a word twice in the Bible, it's not because the writer has a stutter. This is a way of showing emphasis. He doesn't just say, comfort my people. He says, no, no, comfort. Comfort. And notice this. Those people. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, comfort, comfort my people. At this point, we see that discipline is not the final word. Exile is not the final chapter of the story. Although a time of hardship is coming for the people of God, there's also a time for comfort. Right here, we get this truth affirmed. That even after all their unfaithfulness, they are still God's people. He hasn't disowned them. He has been their God. He will always be their God. Even after their rebellion, after all their distrust of him, 
He will not let them go. Now hear this. When there's sin, discipline is necessary. This time of judgment, this time of exile, that's on purpose. God was purifying his people. And yet, his promise of salvation remains. He doesn't abandon his own. These first two verses leave no doubt about God's care and his compassion for his people. He's calling for comfort. He wants them to be strengthened and encouraged. And then he he says something about how the message should be delivered. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Here's how I want you to do it. He says in verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. You can go and you can look up these words and find them in other places of Scripture where they're used as a husband talking to his lover. Speaking to the heart. And this is the language that God uses. Speak to my people like a man does to his wife. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. When he says Jerusalem, he's talking about the people of God. Tell them this. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. We like to try to comfort people, don't we? When we see someone hurting, when we see someone struggling, I think it should be our natural inclination to want to comfort But if you've ever been there, I think we all have, someone's experienced a great loss, they've been through a hard time, words only go so far, don't they? Because we can't change the circumstance. We can let them know we love them, we care for them, but our comfort only goes so far. What we see here is comfort with substance, right? He says, comfort my people and tell them this. Things are going to change. He says three things. Their warfare is ended, their iniquity is pardoned, and the debt they owed for their sins has been satisfied. And I don't think we can fully appreciate that first one, your warfare is ended. We can't fully appreciate that because I don't think any of us have lived in a time of just getting beat down by foreign nations, carried off into exile. But this is a people who had felt that physically. They had been removed from their home. They had been slaves of another nation. And yet here comes this, comfort my people, tell them this. The war is over. A time of peace is coming. Up to this point, God had used their enemies to bring judgment. But now God's announcing that he will have his way with the enemies. The war would be end, and not only that, sin will be pardoned. It's not only a promise of discipline ending, it's one thing to say, You've sinned, the punishment's over. It's a whole other thing to say, you're forgiven. It's not saying that they just made it through. It's saying, no, you're free. Now, there's a hard phrase there. He says that she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. If you're just reading through, that should stop you and you think, well, So he punished them twice? 
What does that mean? What does it mean that they got punished double? They got punished, he says, double for all their sins, and now they're forgiven, which begs the question, did they earn his forgiveness through exile? Had they somehow satisfied God's wrath? It was a penance thing? Is it possible, church, for us to earn God's forgiveness through suffering? No. What's going on here is that God is telling his people, you're forgiven, and your forgiveness is full. What you've received is double, because your sins are fully satisfied, not through what you've done, but through one who is coming. At this point, we should see that these verses are bigger and farther reaching than the original audience. This is a promise of God, not only for his people who lived in exile in Babylon, but it's a promise to all of us that God has the means to forgive sins. And as we keep reading through Isaiah, we see in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, that one who's going to come, who's going to pay the price. God doesn't just cancel sins. He paid for our sins. He bore the wrath that we deserve. What I'm trying to say is there's a sense in which this message of comfort and hope is not just for Israel, but for all the people of God. Take heart. Know that peace is coming. Forgiveness from sin is available. What does that look like? Well, as we keep reading, we hear more about what God says. And that word here, it's purposeful because we get three more sections, and all these sections talk about a voice. Three voices that are declaring something about the comfort that's coming. If we were together on Wednesday night and we outlined this passage, we'd have these three sections all, we'd underline voice, voice, voice. Three sections, three proclamations about comfort. The first voice is in verse 3. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert highway for our God. So we have a, a voice that's calling for something to be done. What's he saying? Go out into the wilderness and prepare a way. Go out into the wilderness and make a, a highway, make a, a straight path. And that may not make any sense to you. But what he's doing is he's using imagery to say something to the people of God. Say so lived in a, in a time when there were paths for travel, but there weren't necessarily roads for travel. So People could try, but what if there was a big group coming? What if there was a king coming? This is the picture, okay? There's a king coming. Go out and make a road. Make it straight. Make it wide. God is coming to his people. God is traveling through the desert to come and to be with his people. And this is the, the picture that this is supposed to paint for us. Make a way for the king. Make his way easy. Make it free from obstacles. Make it straight and smooth and clear. The Lord is coming. Prepare the way. But is he actually telling them to go build a road? No, it's a metaphor for something else. What's it a metaphor for? What's, what's this preparation actually supposed to look like? We have an advantage. We can fast forward and we can read the Gospels. 
If you go to Matthew, Mark, or Luke, I'm going to go to Luke this morning. In Luke, we have the story of one who comes before the Christ. We call him John the Baptist. He was a cousin of Christ, and he was sent before Christ to proclaim his coming. And we read this in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, that John went into all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's an important phrase. What was his message? Repent. As it's written in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Let me try to put this together for you. Back in Isaiah, which was written generations and generations before the coming of Christ, we have this prophecy. This voice says, go into the wilderness and prepare a way for the coming of the Lord. It's this picture of making a way clear for a king who's coming. Now John comes on the scene. He's the forerunner of Christ, and this is his message. Repent. Make yourself ready for the coming of the Lord. What was John doing? He was preparing the way. And the way is prepared in the hearts of the people. How were they to prepare the way for the coming of the king? To recognize their sin and to repent of it. John was making the road in the hearts of the people. Preparing that way for the coming of the Lord. And I have to stop here, church, and ask you, because I've already told you that he's coming, Christ is coming again, and the question must be, is there preparation going on in your heart? Are you a person of repentance? Are you a person of faith in the one who's coming? When we read this, we see John speaking to people before the first coming of Christ, but we recognize he's coming again, and when he comes, he comes both as king and judge. And the question must be, have you responded to the call of God in repentance of faith? The first voice says, prepare the way. Recognize that preparation must be done. And then there's a transition, and this is interesting. First, we have the command to prepare a way, and then we have an assurance that nothing will prevent the coming of the king. Look at verse 4. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground should become level and the rough places plain. What's being said here? Well, again, we're talking in metaphor. We're talking in images. Remember the picture was the king's coming. Go out and make a way. Here's what he says. The king is coming, and when he comes, there won't be any obstacles. The ground will be level. The way will be straight. The king is coming, and nothing will prevent his coming. And when he comes, everyone's going to see him. Verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, at this point, I want to just acknowledge something. That when we read, we can read backwards and we can see that there's a lot going on here. When the people of God read this the first time, 
They anticipated a coming, and they anticipated one coming, right? Now, we know that he came, and he accomplished salvation, but there's more to be done. He ascended to heaven, and now he's coming again. So we look back, and we recognize what Isaiah is talking about is not only the first coming, but a, a second coming. Verse 5 is still ahead of us. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. He's coming, and all will see him. And church, this is a message that's supposed to comfort us. Remember? Comfort, comfort my people. Here's the comfort. He's coming, and all will see him. One day he's going to come. He's going to gather all who are his into eternal joy. And he'll come in judgment against all who have rejected him. It's a day that's still ahead of us. And comfort's not only an idea. Comfort is a person. Jesus is coming. We wait for his return. And we know this, that when he comes, peace comes. Warfare will be ended. We'll see the final work of our salvation. Sins pardoned and satisfied. How do we know he's coming? Did you see the end of verse 5? He says, Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you know what the point is there? God said it, so it's going to happen. How can we be sure about this coming? Comfort, how can we be sure about this coming glory? The Lord has spoken, which is a way of saying it will be done. And the whole next section builds that case. We get a second voice. The first voice said, prepare for the person of comfort. The second voice says, you can know he's coming because God's word never fails. Verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Now go to your commentary on Isaiah and find seven pages trying to figure out who's crying and who's answering. There's a lot of different speculation, and it's fun to, to go through that. I won't take you through it this morning. Perhaps it's a messenger of God or God himself saying to Isaiah, like in Isaiah 6, who will go and who will go for me? And Isaiah says, I'll go. Maybe it's like that. And Isaiah is the one. He says, what do I tell them? What should I cry? And we get a message wrapped in metaphor. All flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. So what we have here is a comparison between us and grass and flowers. And the long and short of it is we are frail, we are temporary, at least in comparison to God. You know this, right? I love grass. Here's my biggest frustration. During the fall, there's a part of my backyard that gets a fungus. And it turns brown before the rest of the yard, and it's really ugly. Here's my point. No matter how hard you try, grass is fickle. Stephen, grass is fickle. It's frail. It doesn't last. 
And this is the comparison. We are like grass and flowers. Now, think about this. The people had been taken captive by Babylon. And they may have felt like Babylon is stronger than our God. No. People are grass. People are flowers. Everything that happens is by the hand of God. What we see here is that man is limited, unreliable, weak. But God is strong, unshakable. And he can guarantee everything he says because he is without limits. He knows the future, and he can say with 100% certainty what will happen. So we are like grass and flowers, weak, limited, and frail. Verse 8 confirms the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And you hear that verse quoted every week, don't you? Every week after we read the, the, the scripture, I say the grass withers and the flower fades and the word of our God will stand forever. And maybe you've been here for years thinking, why does he say that? <laughs> Glad you're here. It's a reminder that what we say, what we do, it's not fully reliable. It has its limits. Our words are limited. Our opinions are fallible. But everything God says is true and will never change. The grass and the flowers are here for a time and gone, but God's word never changes. He cannot lie. Everything he says is true, and everything he says will come to pass. And every Sunday when we hear the word open, I hope, and just take this with you. Next time you hear me say, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever, hear this. Everything else I heard, everything else I thought this week, it has its limits. But when God speaks, that's true. Now, I may say some foolish things up here, but when you hear the word of God, that never changes. When you hear an announcement, comfort is coming, believe it. It doesn't feel like it right now, does it? You feel like you are drowning. Comfort is coming. Isaiah says something similar in chapter 55. He says this, another image. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they don't return there, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout. Got it? The, the rain, the snow, it comes, it waters the ground giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, God says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in that thing for which it was sent. When God pronounces judgment, judgment will come. When God promises salvation, salvation will come. His word is sure. The psalmist says it this way. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. 
The word of the God is sure. Let me give you one more. Maybe my favorite. Numbers 23. God is not man that he should lie. Implication? People lie. Right? But God's not like us. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The point, everything God says is true. Everything he promises will come to pass. And this is good news because if we just look at this passage, we've already seen comfort, forgiveness of sins, peace. All these things promised from a God who cannot lie. Take heart. Salvation is coming. All that God has promised will be fulfilled. This is the good news, and it's a message that's meant to be shared. That's what we get in verse 9. Voice number 3. This time, the voice, we know the identity. We're, the, the identity of the voice is given here. It says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Zion and Jerusalem, when you hear that, just hear people of God. It's a command for the people of God. What are they supposed to do? Be heralds, announcers, proclaimers. We'll talk more about what the message is in just a second. But first, notice the way the message is to be proclaimed. Widely, loudly, strongly, courageously. He says, go up on a high mountain. Go tell it on the mountain, right? Go up on a high mountain to make this announcement so that all will hear. Whisper it. No. Lift up your voice. Lift it up with strength. Go to a place with all they can hear. Spread it widely, loudly, and without fear. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. And this is what Brian talked about two weeks ago. A proclamation without fear. Because we know his word is sure, because we know he keeps his promises, we can proclaim it to the world knowing that it's going to come to pass. Judgment and salvation. It's a message that's supposed to go to all people. Boldly, plainly, and without reservation. And it's a call for us as well. Don't limit this as a command to Israel. We have a God who's made promises, who accomplishes salvation. It's a message that we are called to share. So what's the message? What is to be proclaimed? See at the end of verse 9, behold your God. Let's go back to the imagery of 3 to 5. The king is coming. Prepare a way. And if we carry that image through, we have someone going up on the mountain and saying, The king is coming. The king is coming. Behold your God. Tell me about him. 
Behold, the Lord God, he comes with might. His arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. Think about the people of God who have been living in exile in this time of war. But now they're told he's coming. How does he come? He comes with a strong arm. He comes with might. This is good news for us. The king is coming who has defeated sin and death and will declare his victory over all things. This is the message that we have to share. The king is coming, and the question is, how will you respond to the coming of the king? Will you prepare? Will you be ready? Will you acknowledge him for who he is? When he comes, all who believe will be saved. When he comes, all who deny him will be punished. He's coming with a strong arm. He's coming in victory. His reward and his recompense are before him. Go to your commentary on Isaiah. (laughs) Find six or seven pages talking about what is the reward, what is the recompense, what's going on. Is it for him or is it for us? It says it's with him and it's before him. Let me give you two options. Choose which one you like best. I think they're both valid options. One, he's coming, and because he's the victorious king, he will receive his reward, and his reward is us. His reward and his recompense is before him. Or he's a king coming, and he's bestowing something, which is for us. They're kind of the same, aren't they? He's coming, and he's coming to bring salvation to his people. When Jesus comes on that final day, we will see the hope that we've been waiting for. What is the message we're to proclaim? We're almost done. Hang with me. One, there is a victorious king coming. So get this picture of this big, mighty, victorious king who's going to slay the enemy. And then see this picture in verse 11 of a good and gentle shepherd. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Not only is he coming as a conquering king, but as a gentle and caring shepherd. We talked about this last week, didn't we? So go reread Psalm 95. Read Psalm 23. A shepherd who tends to his flock. This is your God, church who holds his sheep close, carrying us in his arms by his chest, caring especially for those who are weak and in need of help. A verse maybe you should memorize and keep close at hand. That we have a God who's quick to draw close. A God who doesn't turn away from us in our weakness. He's hands-on with our frailty. What a sweet reminder. God comes near and holds close those who are his. And we see that most clearly at Christmas as we remember that God, of all things, came and lived among us. He lived among us. He died. He rose again. He ascended to heaven 
and he's coming again. And we look forward to his coming, and Advent is anticipation. I know, again, I'll say, some of you have had a year that you didn't expect, and it's not the year you would have asked for. And what I hope this month does for you, this time of Advent, is it allows you to find hope in knowing that God is coming again. He is your king. He is your shepherd. All his promises are true. Take heart. Salvation is coming. Christ has come. Christ is coming. And all who trust in him will be saved. Remember what we sang earlier. Go spread the news of Emmanuel. Joy and peace for the weary heart. Lift up your heads for the king has come. Sing for the light overwhelms the dark. Glory shining for all to see. Hope alive. Let the gospel ring. God has made a way. He will have the praise. Tell the world his name is Jesus. Christ has come. Christ is coming. Take heart, weary saint. Let's be faithful till he comes. Would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you that everything you have said is true. Now, we acknowledge that you have said that there is judgment for all who don't believe. And so we believe that's true. If there's any here who have continued to reject you, I pray that they would be convinced your word is true and faith is essential. We also rejoice because your word is true and you have said that you will come and make all things right, and we feel broken. We feel the mess. We see the mess, and yet this is our hope. Salvation is coming. I pray that you would use the words we've heard this morning that you have given us to find hope and joy and peace, and may we be faithful to proclaim to all who will hear, the King is coming. The King offers salvation. Would you use us to be faithful messengers of your coming salvation? In Jesus' name, amen.